Hello, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. The podcast where we talk justice over coffee with some of the most remarkable people. Today, notwithstanding, I'll be chatting to Esther Stein Jansen, human trafficking specialist at the Salvation Army and director of the Be Slavery Free campaign group in Holland. In this interview, we cover a lot of ground from slavery in the cocoa industry to sex trafficking in Amsterdam's red light district. So a bit of a background on this one. I first heard Esther speak a few months ago at an online panel discussion on the topic of sex trafficking hosted by an anti-trafficking campaign group, which I greatly admire. However, of the five panelists, three, maybe even four of them, seem to use this platform to air their rather partisan views, lobbying for the international decriminalization of sex work, which took me by surprise. The subject very much dominated the hour-long broadcast, and in my opinion, completely overshadowed the advertised subject of sex trafficking. One guest speaker, however, was brave enough to go against the tide and state for the record and from her experience that the legalisation of sex work in Holland has been catastrophically ineffective and it has in fact given legitimacy and protection to organised criminals operating brothels full of trafficked women. Esther's opinion was conspicuous in its opposition to the trend, and I've always had a soft spot for the underdog. The issue of how to handle the sex industry is a fiercely contested topic with competing approaches and models. It's also one that courts considerable controversy and I know there will be listeners to this podcast who have a variety of views on the matter all are welcome I know that most views come from the same place which is the desire to see the most vulnerable protected I happen to agree with Esther and her brave warning regarding the dangers of the decriminalization of sex work and what this could mean to trafficking victims. Which is why I reached out to her to see if she might be willing to come and talk to us on this podcast. And I'm so glad I did. I know you're going to love getting to know Esther. By the end of our conversation, I had certainly become one of her top fans. So here it is, my conversation with Esther Stein Jansen. Oh, and P.S. I forgot to switch on my podcasting microphone on this one. So my audio is a bit crap. Sorry. Esther, welcome to the podcast. So it is, it's lunchtime here or, or late lunch. It's lunchtime in Holland too. Is that right? No, it's an hour later. So I had my lunch. Oh, God. Yeah. Lunch has come and gone, which explains why you told me before I pressed record that you weren't actually joining me for coffee this afternoon. I'm so sorry, Brian, but I had three cups this morning and it's the first thing I do when I wake up. So Three cups. In that case, you, you're well qualified for this conversation. Well, well done, you and your, your coffee addiction. Is there any particular coffee of choice? How do you, how do you tend to enjoy your coffee? Um, I like it with a bit of full cream milk, but not too much. And uh, in the Netherlands, we have some really, really good coffee shops. So we're usually pretty spoiled coffee drinkers. You do. Um, you, you've got a lovely scene out there. I've yeah. only only been to Amsterdam out of all of your your beautiful different uh, cities and, and parts of the country. I've only been, but I have been several times, and I love like the coffee shop vibe over there. Uh, give or take the give or take the cannabis, but yeah, I do. Coffee shops and coffee shops. We're talking about the ones where they sell coffee. Yes. <laughs> yeah, actual coffee and actual chocolate brownies. Yeah. But there is a lovely, yeah, lovely, relaxed, cosmopolitan vibe about it. I'm a big, big fan. So, yeah, why don't you paint that picture for me? Where you are at the moment? You know, what does your life look like in the immediate? And the surrounding, I imagine you're also under some degree of lockdown, are you? 
Uh, well, not really. Uh, I work for the Salvation Army most of my time and I do be slavery free on the side. And both of those uh, never stopped at all. And working wow. for um, um, a healthcare organization, uh, it, it just goes on. So I have to visit locations and do stuff. So I am one of their um, uh, staff workers on human trafficking. So whenever any of the staff have cases of human trafficking, I help them and support them. And uh, it's my job to bring human trafficking on the attention of the staff and employees uh, of the Salvation Army. That's awesome. I actually, I, I was very conscious of your organization, Be Slavery Free, and I want to hear about that and, and yeah. its history with Stop the Traffic. I was less conscious of your work with the Salvation Army, so I'm actually delighted that I stumbled across that because from day one of this podcast, I wanted to get someone from the Salvation Army to talk to us. I haven't managed to do it yet, only because I've not got round. Well, now you have both. This is it, two birds with one stone. So that's awesome. I, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people aren't aware, actually, of the role of the Salvation Army in the issue of human trafficking. Now, I'm not going to ask you necessarily to go back and look at the history of it and uh, and, and why that is. And, but I know in the UK, they, they take a big role um, in, in managing, yeah. well, looking yeah. after victims who come through the, the national referral mechanism. And, and it's, yeah. it's, it's not just in the UK. I know the Salvation Army are active in the issue of anti-human trafficking endeavours all over the, the world. So that's so good that we've, we can talk a little bit about that, perhaps. Yeah. So why don't we start, though, like all of these stories? I ask people to take a look in the looking glass and take a trip down memory lane and say, ask themselves, where, where does this story begin for me? Where does this association with fighting for justice or rather fighting injustice, where do I think that began in my life? What about you? Well, I was born in South Africa. So I was five when we moved to the Netherlands. My father was um, worked for a large Christian NGO which uh, has as a motto that more people go through the churches of a ho uh, doors of a hospital than through the doors of a church. And the training center of that was in a little village in the Netherlands, Fortuyser. So we moved there when I was five years old. And uh, for me, that was quite a culture shock. And mm. also finding out that people thought that because we were from South Africa, that we used to live in uh, straw huts <laughs> with... Um, uh, animal feces on the walls and they would ask us questions like if my parents had slaves when we were in South Africa and we, if we were to chain up our household stuff and so I um, I wouldn't say it was racist but it was sort of short-sighted and I very quickly realized that what people were saying about South Africa and Netherlands was not how I experienced it uh, so I, from a very early age, realized that what the news says is the actual situation in the country uh, might not be the case or that it's much more gray than the media would paint it. Mm. Uh, and I felt a great responsibility for what my ancestors had done in apartheid. And I couldn't understand it. And I wasn't raised like that because I uh, grew up in the Netherlands and my parents also worked in a multi um, national uh, organization where people of all colors were the same. So I wasn't trained like that, uh, to think like that. I mean, if you live in a country like South Africa, apartheid is something that's just normal. And to me, it wasn't normal. So I could see in the Netherlands how people perceived something very different. I could see in South Africa how things were just different. And that raised a huge concern in my heart for why people would be so mean to each other or uh, that normal isn't normal and in South Africa you still as a woman have a bigger chance of getting raped than you have of learning how to read and write wow so ever since I was a young girl I uh and I had two younger brothers who were always making jokes that women couldn't do anything so from a very young age, I was very ambitious to show them that they were wrong and also uh, show the world that things could be different. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing that, that you followed 
you followed that route in your life that you identify those things so early on and you yeah. went about it's a very serious it. kid Bryn yeah yeah <laughs> sounds it but that's great though isn't it yeah. so so did you have a clear idea as a young woman as a teenager of, of how you might how those those passions might manifest no not at all I did I always wanted to help people so I did social work when I was 18 for a year and I quickly figured out I only wanted to help people I wanted to help and I wasn't very much interested in um, if if people had troubles paying their rent or stuff I, I wasn't that interested in that so what made me tick was finding out the big things in someone's life and helping someone to become empowered to so that they can make their own choices. And to me, that was something I really uh, loved doing. And I always wanted to work for a Christian organization. And I could never get a job whenever I applied to anything Christian. So um, that must have been something God had decided me to not do. So I worked in a lot of non-Christian jobs before I um, saw the position at Stop the Traffic then. And I didn't know that they were Christian, but I knew that the guy who was running it then was a Christian. So I thought, well, that's at least something, right? (laughs) And then uh, when I first came, they only did a campaign on chocolate. And he said, we're never going to do anything else but chocolate. And I thought, hmm, let's see about that. And then uh, six months later, we started our campaign on uh, sexual exploitation. So that's really interesting. So when you first encountered Stop the Traffic, so we have had Stop the Traffic on this podcast. We spoke to Anna Sophia and Sarah Brown. They were one of the first episodes we did, actually. I really enjoyed hearing about what Stop the Traffic now do. But I didn't realise, actually, they had an office in the Netherlands. That's amazing. So in its early days, the focus of that was the cocoa industry. Yeah, when Stop the Traffic first started, it started on cocoa. uh, And it was a campaigning organisation, and uh, Anthony Fountain uh, was the, uh, their person in the Netherlands, and he's come on. He's one of the main chocolate experts in the world now when it comes to sustainability and um, human trafficking and chocolate. So if you go to the Voice Network, Bryn, you will find that we write a cocoa barometer every three years, and that's like the industry standard for all the chocolate companies on how they are doing. So if you ask Mars how they're doing on sustainability, they might refer you to the Voice Network's Cocoa Barometer. Oh, nice. So we were like really top level campaigners on that. And I one time asked Mondelez Chocolate. Um, so at his going away party, a lot of the chocolate companies showed up to say goodbye to him because they knew he'd still be in the industry. So they wanted to make nice. And I asked Mondelez how it was for them whenever we released a campaign on them. And she said, oh, it's just manic. All our head office just explodes whenever you do a campaign. So when we asked Nestle, uh, we run a campaign on Smarties uh, in uh, Australia. And they said that they would completely certify their chocolate in every country we campaigned on them. Amazing. That's yeah. impact, isn't it? That really is. I remember hearing, so we had in the last podcast, Steve Short came on and, and spoke to me and he um, formed the organisation Oasis from which Stop the Traffic was born. And uh, I didn't get a chance to answer all the questions I wanted to, so many I wanted to ask him, but one of them was actually, I saw that he was involved in campaigning against, uh, well, against child labour, of course, in the cocoa industry yeah. and lobbying cabaries to to only trade in fair trade chocolate and I thought that's really interesting we never got around to ask you so I'm developing my picture I wonder whether you've seen in the news so we sell and to some degree are partnered with Tony's Chocoloni because we sell their product and we love what they do and what they represent and their their efforts to fight the issue of child labor in their supply chain and in the cocoa industry as a whole and they, they've come under fire a little bit recently about some of Quite the about the, yeah that's that's right yeah so I just wanted to yeah. know what your what your thoughts were on that then yeah so last year they won our golden egg uh, we do a scorecard on the chocolate industry together with uh, mighty earth 
in Kota and um, uh, Green America. And they were by far the top chocolate company in the world, Bryn. Mm. So it's not that they are doing something really weird. It's just Barry Callabout's factory. Barry Callabout is uh, one of the huge traders. So in the chocolate industry, there are five major chocolate companies and there are five major traders. And Barry Callabout is one of the traders. They've been using their factory for like forever. It's not something they've ever been unclear about. Um, but I mean, even um, Voice Network, we made uh, um, a calculation for living income. And I believe even not Tony's is paying what would actually be a living income. So it's chocolate is really difficult. I mean, I know you're totally into the coffee industry uh, and most farmers cannot live from what they earn from just um, growing cocoa. And then you have this discussion, uh, should there be small cocoa farms? Why don't they just go for one big farm? And uh, then they could do new trees. But for instance, one of the things I found out is that a lot of the cocoa farmers are actually leasing the land from the owners that live there. So they're immigrants from another country. And if they were to renew the trees, which needs to be done every uh, so often to get a more yield, then they would lose rights to lease that piece of land. So they don't change the trees as often as they should because they will then lose their rights to work on that land. So it's it's so complex. So can you blame the chocolate industry for the fact that in a country people don't have the land that they're working on? And um, like for instance, in South America, the farmers don't have the same problems because they have much bigger farms. They use machines to get the cocoa pods off, uh, but then also very uh, few fewer farms live, few farmers live from it. So the price that is perfect for cocoa farmers in South America is way too low for those in West Africa. So it's, it's there's no uh, hard answer. We've been campaigning on chocolate like forever. And uh, in 2010, we published the Cocoa Barometer in which we said, unfortunately, certification is still certifying poverty and they need to mm. do better. And um, they are trying to, but then the companies say, well, then we'll just go to another certifier. We'll do our own thing. And we now say certification is the bare minimum a company has to do. And on the scorecard, we're gonna be releasing this Easter Tony's is not going to be one of the bad countries, companies, Bryn. They are still going to be one of the top companies. But maybe they could look into their bar color factory and fix that. It's just they do still pay a 25% premium on top of the fair trade certification, which is unfortunately the case. Even though certification is not wrong, it does need to have huge improvements. There's, uh, there's the, it's, now I probably remembered this wrong, but is it the, Herc's Engel Protocol. Have I got that completely yeah, right? Yeah, Harkin and Angel. Yeah, oh, it there was uh, done quite. last year. It was up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Harkin and Angel. Yeah, yeah exactly. Time yeah. is up, right? It keeps getting more than up. Yeah, keeps getting put back. This this uh, demand on the big chocolate companies to eradicate all forms of slavery and child labour from their supply chains, and these these enormous uh, corporations such as Mars and Hershey. Have said, oh, give us a few more years. This is going to take it's going to take forever to to get this out of our supply yeah. chains, and they keep putting off this date, and it's not being enforced. It makes me mad. Yeah, it's not that they're doing nothing. So I don't want to be too harsh on them. Uh, behind closed doors, we we do make their life a bit complicated sometimes, but we do really strongly believe in working alongside them, and that naming and shaming is not always the best model to get a company to work with you uh, and one of the things we've started to do a couple of years ago which i'm very happy with is we're now also working with uh, deforestation and the ngos and mm. uh, ngos that fight against toxic waste and um, they really look at the microclimate ch changes so we do all of that now in one scorecard which makes the chocolate companies happy because they don't have to answer the questions of four companies and 
just can get it all in one thing. And this scorecard, right, let's give, you've referenced it a few times now, and each time I've forgotten immediately after you said it what it's called. So it's got a bear in it or something, right? What's it called? A scorecard, yeah. No, but your, 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 your report is the something bear. Oh, yeah, there's the, there's the Coco Barometer. The Coco Bear, as in B-E-A-R. No, barometer, barometer. Oh, barrel, good gracious, look at my <laughs> incorrect. You want to hear understand. something with bear in it. That must be what I'm doing, I'm projecting my desire. To, I, I was, my, my eyes were, were sparkling at the idea of a partnership there. Coco barrel meter, okay, slightly yeah. less exciting than the Coco Bear meter, <laughs> but that does make a little bit more sense. Well, you know, I didn't actually invite you on Esther to speak specifically about Cocoa chocolate. And chocolate. No. This is yeah. this is a fantastic discovery. So, be slavery free. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that work? Yeah. If it's if it's distinct from the, the cocoa industry. Yeah. So we are um, an international movement. I mainly work together with Australia. Um, what's cool, I think, about Australia is that they have churches that are politically active. I think you have the same model in the UK. In the Netherlands, that's totally not the case. Churches are not politically active. It's like sort of like a, a no-no. It's a taboo thing. You don't do that. Uh, so they have, for instance, the Baptist World Aid Fund that writes a fashion report and that has their own experts on chocolate and fishing and tea. And so I think that's just amazing that churches would do that, would be, be activists like that. I love it. Uh, and together with them, we run quite a few campaigns. So they are the experts on fishing and tea. And then I just tag along and um, occasionally we do social media campaigns, but they're the ones who go to Thailand and speak to the, um, um, uh, the labor unions there and the Thai government and really try and find out how can we end exploitation in the fishing industry? Because uh, Australia is a huge importer of fish and seafood from Thailand so how can you actually make a difference in that and that's what Beef Lady Free always does is to find out how can we be a part to end exploitation and they do that in lots of uh, consumer goods and to me um, in 2012 I decided to make a campaign on sexual exploitation uh, but you cannot in my opinion put um, working in a sex industry and on the same level as working in a cocoa farm because I think the sex industry trade the product that's being sold is someone's body for a couple of uh, um, a certain amount of time and that's a very different distinct thing and we also asked uh, our supporters what they wanted us to do whether they wanted us to fight for a fair sex industry or whether they wanted us to fight to end sexual exploitation in a sex industry. And um, as we well assumed that they would find it more important that they would, we would fight um, sexual exploitation. So we decided to come up with a prevention campaign. Uh, and that's what I've been spending years and years on in, in trying to figure out if you say we want to stop sexual exploitation, what the stop look like mm. and that's how you came across me in the webinar it's like the accumulation of years of thinking about um and, and also you saw my ted talk right so one of the things that shocked me to my core was to find out that if someone is uh raped in the sex industry so like while working as a prostitute the crime for that is like so much less than if someone has was raped outside the sex industry. It's, it's almost like this euphemism happens whether someone is providing sexual services in or out. And as, as if we see this assumption that someone who um, provides sexual services is just not human or isn't worthy of the same punishment as I would be because I'm not working in a sex industry. It's, it's, it's a really interesting subject and, and one I feel oof, quite emotionally connected to, uh, yeah. probably as a consequence of 
time investigating human trafficking and experiences in the police and, and from working in NGOs. But it's also a subject that courts quite a degree of controversy. There are competing views. And I think most of them, most of them come from the right place. That people yeah. want to see vulnerable women, girls, boys, and in some cases men who are being exploited in the sex industry protected. I think that's yeah. where most of these views, these competing views come from. But there is some difference. There is some difference between, between the different uh, available proposals about how we can best deal with these, this, this particular issue. And I want to get into them a little bit. But in your, your TED talk, rather than focus largely on the sex industry, you sort of zone in on, on the issue of children in the sex industry. And you make this point, yeah. which is shocking about the sentencing of someone that has purchased a child for sex and you ask the audience in your talk how, you know give me your opinion how long do you think how long do you think would be the sentence what do you think the sentence would be for somebody that was was caught paying a child for sex and no one really got an accurate answer did they so can you tell me a little bit about that yeah uh, well in the netherlands we have some um, very stubborn uh, uh, judges so um, our, our the punishment for sexual exploitation was raised three times by our politicians and uh, the judges uh, thought that the politicians should back off and not sit on the judge's stool and that it was their choice whether or not they wanted to go with that and um, the politicians told them if you find a minor selling sexual services, you need to sentence those customers to a jail sentence. And then the judges thought, well, F you will sentence them to one day in jail. Wow. And that's still the case. So even if uh, the boy or girl that's a minor selling sexual services wanted to do that, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether or not. Uh, it should be far more than that, but there's not a minimum sentence set on it. But it does fall under a vice crime if, because uh, a minor cannot be, is not set by law that is able to judge for themselves whether or not it's a good idea to do this. Mm. And I actually want to raise that uh, to 21 years and older for providing sexual services, which I completely agree with, because mm. it's very difficult to see whether someone is 18 or 17 or 16 and 18 is still a quite vulnerable age even though people who are 18 are completely disagree with me i mean they they, they can uh, conquer the world right it's still a vulnerable age and we've had quite a few cases of people being groomed and then on their 18th birthday being put behind the windows so um to me that was just shocking that we had a huge case and I spoke to the district attorney's officer who had that cause, case brought in. And I mean, he was really, I could see the pain in his eyes, in his eyes when he told how, what a devastating disaster that court case was. Because the judges really felt for the men who had bought sex from that minor girl. And it was a girl who, was, who had mental health issues and who was in, the, in a child care uh, organization. Her pimp was one of the boys also living in the care facility with her and one of the um, social workers living there working there with them was helping that boy to pimp out this girl i mean it was a, such a tremendous case they had 80 uh, contacts of that young girl in a couple of days she had had over 80 customers or customers but people buying sex from them and then three men committed suicide because they thought the shame of them having to go to court over this was so bad and then the judges said stuff like yeah well how could they have known and oh, it's so horrible for these men and their lives are just like ruined and and I was just and I think I say it to my TED talk too we have a legalized sex industry in the Netherlands then you go online find um, a young teenage girl you don't speak to her you speak to her pimp you have to go to a hotel her pimp is in the bathroom waiting while you have sex with this young girl and no alarm bells go off 
And then you go to the judge and you just say, well, how on earth was I supposed to know mm. that this was a, a minor? I could have never known. It, I think, I mean, if you go to the police and you have, you, you buy a stolen bike on the street and you're like, yeah, well, how was I supposed to know? I mean, yeah, I know it's not a bike store, but I mean, yeah, it was just, how could I, I I'm just so fed up with anyone claiming that they could have not have known while you're in the illegal sex industry buying sex from a young girl in a hotel just get a life i mean no ignorance defense yeah it's it's no defense is it it's it's funny because i think we often in the uk look to countries like holland as these amazing egalitarian (laughs) utopian visions of how to run a country but actually, there are injustices in practice in your yeah. in your systems that are draconian, you know, and yeah. uh, and that's very much the case in the UK as well. And, and in another quote unquote Western or developed countries, we see them all the time, and sometimes they're, they're just shocking. These things are shocking. Yeah, and it's really shocking. The yeah. issue of age is a real difficult one because, from my experience on a project that was specifically investigating the trafficking of children, the exploitation of children, that was distinguished by their age. And what would happen is we would have time restraints and pressure to respond to cases before children age out. So yesterday you were a victim we could help. Tomorrow, when you turn 18, we can't anymore. That wasn't always the case. It's not always as black and white as that. But to some extent, there was was some truth in that. And, and, And you're right, there's... There are a number of there are a number of studies that have found that, that women entering the sex industry, a high percentage of women entering the sex industry entered before they were eighteen. When when we encounter them as adults, there is an expectation or projected expectation that they're there at choice. Certainly, probably from a customer's point of view. And we spoke to an incredibly brave young woman called Claire earlier in the podcast series spoke to us just before Christmas and she was she was trafficked from university in England by a man she met online and he forced her into uh, working as a prostitute in in France and she described this frustration of men using her and thinking that that she was totally there by choice right she was acting with agency yeah. and he, to one conversation she referenced where this guy was like well the good thing about sleeping with you is that i know you're safe and looked after you're not being exploited isn't it terrible about some of the women in brothels that are exploited and she's sort of going yeah yeah i know what you mean isn't it terrible but inside she's thinking do you really think i want to be here doing doing this so it's a oh it's a complicated one it's a complicated one but yeah. I really I really enjoyed what you had to say at that that webinar and I felt that it was somewhat I was left having watched it and it's by a fantastic campaign organization that I'm, I think are brilliant they do a really good job at raising global issues of injustice large largely human trafficking to bring them to our attention so I was really looking forward to it but I felt that yeah. your point of view wasn't it wasn't a balanced conversation and I wanted to hear more from what, what you were saying. It, it turned into a conversation regarding prostitution or sex work and whether it should be decriminalised or not, rather than the onus and, and the focus being on the vulnerability and prevalence of sex trafficking within the sex industry. And, and what, what you voiced in that conversation was, well, actually, I live in Holland and sex, uh, the sex industry has been legalised and it doesn't work what we've actually done is given organized criminal groups a business license and i thought hmm that's a really good point yeah i i think that that, that was one of the biggest things so um I'm, I'm glad to hear that you think we live in this utopian uh, society uh i i get where you would think that because the netherlands everything is clean most cities at least is nice and our roads are very well our pavements are perfect and most gardens look really nice and um, our healthcare system is quite okay and uh, our schoolings are pretty well well and um, I have a, a couple of friends in the UK and I've heard that your schools can be really expensive if you want your kid to go to a good school we don't have that in the Netherlands our, our schools 
I mean, even our royal family goes to the same schools as uh, other people would. It's not private schools uh, like you have. So it's um, uh, in the Netherlands, even if you are very poor, you could have an excellent education, which I love. And I think that sort of puts people to sleep. It makes them assume uh, things are well organized. And if you can uh, believe that from our school system and our hospitals, why wouldn't the same be for the sex industry, specifically because it's legalized? And to me, that was just... Um, so we, we the only thing they legalized was it was now legal to exploit someone, which is even worse. Uh, so it was never illegal to sell sex in the Netherlands, but it was illegal to exploit someone for it. Uh, so the pimping was not allowed and brothels were not allowed. You were not allowed to exploit someone for it. But now we say, no, it's fine. You can be a trafficker. It's no problem. As long as that person gives you agency for it, then you can be a trafficker. It's all good. And I didn't think they, think they thought that through. And also... Uh, legalizing something means you condone it. You um, purposely say you can buy another person as an object. This is okay. And that changes something in the perception people have of this. I've been giving presentations on sexual exploitation for nine years now. I've had, in my opinion, the most horrible conversations with people who were like, Okay, so, but if a guy buys sex from a woman and then he doesn't pay her, that's just loss of income. And I would say, no, that person sees it then as a rape. No, of course not. I said, yes, because then it becomes personal. Then it isn't a financial transaction anymore. Then that person is being raped. It becomes personal. What? That's ridiculous. I said, no, it's not ridiculous. I said, it's ridiculous to think that it's not personal. I mean, if you pay money for it, then that person can at least think to themselves, well, I'm getting paid for it, so it's fine. Although uh, the price for a prostitute hasn't gone up in 21 years, Bryn. It used to be 50 guldens, 50 guilders in 2020, in 2000, and it's still 50 euros now in 2021 which i think is an incredibly low number and then if you go to the tipple zones where most women and men are working there are, are drug addicts they will have people giving out hand jobs and blow jobs for just five euros which i think is so demeaning that you would pay someone that amount of price and then sort of think well because i paid that person i'm okay it's 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 done and, and it took me quite a few years I, when i first started this i thought well if someone wants to do that that their own thing then who am i to have any opinions on this and quite quickly you realize that starting something voluntarily doesn't happen a lot in the sex industry there are people who have that I think the best example I can give you is I was one time on a debate uh, and it was on sex work and prostitution and there was this high-class escort owner, a lady, and she said that to be able to assure that no one was abused uh, in her high-class escort uh, agency, those ladies had to speak Dutch. They had to have an education that they could fall back on. They were not allowed to be addicted. They were not allowed to have any debts. And only then would she hire them. And uh, they also had to have another job on the side. So prostitution could not be their only source of income. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Okay, where can I sign? I mean, this is like excellent regulations. If we put this on everyone working in the sex industry, like 95% of those people cannot apply to those um, things so i thought yeah so you're giving the solution here and everyone's applauding you for having these regulations and no one is thinking to themselves well this is weird because if we as an ngo were to say okay so everyone has to speak dutch they're not allowed to be in debt they're not allowed to be a drug addict and it, this is not supposed to be their main source of income then everyone would be like are you crazy you cannot say that and she does it because she knows it will, she can then for sure for herself think, okay, well, 
I did everything I could to stop human trafficking or to not give traffickers any chance. And that's true. A lot of these people are being held in debt bondage, so they have no chance of going out or they have to provide for their family and they cannot get out. It's, it's such an evil circle of, of so much pain. And I don't know, maybe it's, it's because people would like to think that sex is fun and they, they, they love painting me as a frigid bitch who doesn't want them to buy sex. It makes it easier for them to sleep, I think, if they just see me as this frugal little twit who doesn't um, have an opinion of her own and who just thinks that everyone who works in a sex industry is a, is a victim. Or they will say that we just want to exploit victims so we can buy a bigger building in the Netherlands. Well, we're all working on volunteers, so I don't know where this whole idea comes from that I earn any money from my where I could be slavery free, but I've never done. So I just, I, I was like baffled when I went into my research on sexual exploitation in the Netherlands, I came across judges who were paid off uh, by human traffickers. I came across embassy people who would give out visa to five underage secretaries for an, a government official who they then had to arrest at the border because they knew that these secretaries, uh, underage secretaries, were not secretaries, of course, but just kids being exploited. I came across uh, border patrol police who would first have sex with an underage asylum seeker girl before they were to give her over to the ordinary police. It's people in, in uh, prisons who would have sex with uh, inmates who were... Um, um, victims of human trafficking. I came across pastors and churches who would try to exploit victims of human trafficking again as if they hadn't been abused enough. I mean, abused once, why not again? I mean, they were loose women anyway. It, it, it was so mind-shockingly awful. I think I spent uh, a good year, two years of just crying and being so angry and I mean, lying next to my husband in bed and just thinking, man, and just being so, so angry. And uh, I just thought to myself, how on earth am I ever going to make a campaign on this? I mean, it's supposed to be fun, enticing and enthusiastic and getting people to join in and empowering. And, and, and I had a conversation with God and I told him, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I mean... I think we messed up so severely. Let's just nuke the whole planet and start over. Maybe the monkeys will do better, but we messed it up. I mean, it's just like, get it over with, please. And then I asked God to make my heart bigger because I thought the, the amount of heart I have now, it, it's just not enough. I'm just, I can't do this. I, uh, I have no way of experiencing anything beautiful in this. It's just rotten. Then I spent another two years crying, but then a bit more happy tears. But if you ask God to make your heart bigger, it means that you can feel much more. So all the things I'd already gone through in my life, if you can feel more, you feel a whole different layer underneath it. So I had to go through all of my painful experiences in my life again. Mm. Uh, and, but in the end, after that, my heart feels much more elastic now. I can experience all that pain, um, and it doesn't destroy me as much as it did before. And from that, we devised a campaign because I thought, I, I don't believe it's, it's right how we address men in our campaigns as NGOs. A lot of NGOs will either portray victims of um, sexual exploitation as scared little girls with blue eyes and uh, black eyes, I mean, and men as the scary perpetrators. And, and I just thought this is awful. I mean, whenever I went to an anti-trafficking conference, it would be like 99% females. And then a few very scared looking men were just like, what am I doing here? All these women and I'm a man, whoa. And, and I thought this is so bad. I mean, we all have to join hands and do this together. and telling women that they are victims, I don't believe that's empowering at all. And I don't want to be seen as a victim. 
I was a victim of sexual um, sexual violence quite a few times in my life. And I tend to tell that after I've given a presentation, not at the start, because it will change the way people will look at me. So if I start off a presentation and said, I've been a victim of sexual violence so many times, I cannot remember even more how many times it happened. It will change the way people see you. So to do that to a survivor of sexual exploitation, to have them portrayed as just that, it's not who they are at all. It's a part of their past that shaped them in sometimes a very unfortunate way. It's a scar they can never get rid of. It's not something they want to be addressed on every time of the year. It's not your main thing. And so we made a campaign in which we told men, you are so important. Mm. How you are, you tell your wife and your kids how they can expect other men to cheat them. If you don't uh, address your friends when they can't call someone or when they're being mean or hurtful to women, and you're telling the other men in your life, I'm okay with this. So are you going to be a part of the solution or are you going to be a part of this problem? And how do you want other men to treat your children, treat other kids the same way? And that was just, I thought that was so much God's wisdom, you know? I had this Bible text in my mind, innocent as a dove, shrewd as a serpent. And I try and think about that every time we do a campaign. So how can we address sex buyers without ever saying we're addressing sex buyers? And if you want to do this, very early on in my research, I came across a professor, Andrea Di Nicola, from the University in Trento in Italy. And he said, Esta... (laughs) You're the frugal bitches who don't want them to buy sex. No campaign you're going to do is ever going to address sex buyers. So, and it took me then another four years to come up with something that I thought, okay, this could answer that question. Uh, And I think it's so important for us to be creative in our solutions and to engage men and women and to not, I I would never call it sex. You have a lot of people calling it violence against women, prostitution. I think that's not helpful at all. There are so many trans people, persons in this. There's so many boys too. It's not okay to call it. Even though most of the victims are women, calling it sexual violence against women is just not helpful. Mm. I'm glad I didn't interrupt you. That was was fantastic. Thank you for... (laughs) For sharing that. I wonder then if you're aware of some of these models that I referenced earlier in our chats, such as the, the Nordic model, which criminalizes the buyer. If we're looking to deter yeah. the buyer and protect the sex worker, one of the models that's been adopted by a number of countries, originally in Sweden in the, in the 90s, yeah. 2015, Northern Ireland, uh, began to practice this this approach and several other countries do now that's one that's one model and it's got its fiercest critics and it's got its most passionate supporters yeah. but i don't know whether how you feel about that model or other alternatives about addressing the issue of sex work and how to how to reduce yeah. the, the vulnerability of sex workers well Bryn, i'm i'm not very optimistic about any model or any legislation actually changing it. So I would be for a pimping ban. Because I think uh, making sex bio, buying illegal, I'm sorry, people, um, I, I, don't, I have a lot of friends who disagree with me on this. Uh, I think that makes, it does make people providing sexual services more vulnerable because then they'll have to hide it. Uh, I think the best win for them would be that no one can exploit them. If pimping is illegal, uh, and I, so legalization, I think also not a good model because then you condone the buying of sex. So on that part, I agree with the Dutch government to just pretend like you're, you haven't seen it. It's like, but you you sort of regulate it, but, but the pimping then I've spoken to quite a few, well, you were a police officer. 
uh, it's so difficult to prove that someone wants to uh, give that person agency or not. And, and I've heard so many complex stories. A really good friend of mine was exploited in the sex industry for five years. And it took her 15 years to admit that she was exploited because she was in love with a trafficker and she willingly worked for him. He never paid her a penny. She didn't get a cent of those five years of work, but she loved him so much that she did it willingly. And then five years later, this last October, she finally said to me, Esther, I was exploited. And I was like, yeah, you were. And she just, she just couldn't grasp it. It was too much of a, a stretch for her. Well, she's a very fervent fighter against sexual exploitation and very outspoken on it. She still had such a huge problem with admitting to herself, I was exploited. And none of the models I've seen would fix that brain. I mean, legislation doesn't fix uh, the traumatizing effect that this has on people. And, and as I said in the webinar too, I think the only thing that was really effective in Norway uh, and in Sweden was the gender equality education they had. They spent millions of money on training police, on training government officials, on training uh, teachers, youngsters, youth workers about gender equality. So if you ask me what model is going to work, I'm going to have to say legislation on gender equality. I think uh, for men to have the freedom to be emotional beings, to not be confined just reading an article about how women have evolved and grown up and we now have this 2021 view of ourselves and if you ask men how they perceive themselves most will still go back to 1950 mentality of how a man is supposed to be he's supposed to be a caretaker and a provider and not feel and yes i think the legislation conversation doesn't deal at all all with the problems underneath it. So as long as we see people providing sexual services as less than human, as we already do in the sentencing, how people address them, how you still see it in movies all over. I mean, Me Too has changed it a bit, but still, I see this really weird thing now, uh, together with the Black Lives Matter movement, that it's sort of okay to be uh, the pornification of society. That as a woman, if you wanna, uh, the new clip I think by Nicki Minaj, it's like it's like it's porn, but it's it's sort of okay. And I'm like, but it isn't. It's such an objectification of a woman. And why would that be okay? Because so, okay, yes, I am a frugal bitch who doesn't want people to have sex. It's just I don't get it. Why? And so I think this whole thing about what legislation would work, no legislation is going to solve this brain. Really isn't going to be legislation who does this. It's going to be people who see things differently. As long as we keep pretending that buying someone doesn't do something to you. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just not a normal way to earn your money. And I'm not saying that there are no people working voluntarily in this. No job has their own social workers on standby to take care of them and healthcare professionals specifically trained for them. You don't have that in a normal job. I, I get really upset with people say it's just a job. And I'm like, yeah, no, it isn't. I think it should have like one of these disclaimers. If you were like those deep sea divers that go into the water without uh, oxygen and then they're like, what, dive 40 meters? And everyone knows, okay, you can only do that if you're extremely fit and really well trained. I think the same would go for providing sexual services. You have to be truly tough and very much aware of who you are to be able to do that. And certainly the reality that, that my life experience has, has informed is that's not been my impression, my overall impression of girls, boys and young women I've met in the sex industry yeah. uh, at all. That's not representative of them. 
No, at all. it isn't. I wonder, yeah. with all of that grief and darkness and sadness and ooh, frustration, where do you where do you find your strength and where well it's the same question I asked everybody at the close of our interview which is where where does your hope come from what, what gives you hope for the future what is your hope for the future pick any of those questions and that would be great <laughs> well I love my life and I think uh, doing the work I do I meet the most amazing people who have the same drive in life to excel at uh, trying to end exploitation and keeping people safe and giving them ownership of their life. And that's, it's such fun. I mean, working with my Australian co-workers, it's always the best thing. We have lots of fun together and make jokes and uh, while being very serious about life. And I think it's a very privileged position I meet the most amazing people, and you do too, I think, with your podcasts, who are such generous, giving, wonderfully educated, but also such specialists in their own thing, who tend to be very uh, thoroughly thinking about how they live their lives and why. And whenever we have a conference or a meeting on, on chocolate, we have the best conversations. We also have drink beers and have nice dinners and and laugh but it's and it's just life-giving being around people who really want to change the world around them and we're not afraid to look into the tough topics and the difficult things and I think that's been such a privilege for me apart from being able to be a positive force in this world uh, to see how many people are out there and I think if you look at the world, you could sometimes be really discouraged and think, what's the, what's the use? Why should I? And that's, I think, I think that's darkness. Mm -hmm. A darkness telling you, oh, don't bother. Just stay in bed. Just what night like flakes. Who could care less? And I think there's a, is it William Wilberforce who said, all evil needs to succeed is for good men to do nothing. Um, it wasn't William Wilberforce, but um, that quote to me is very, very important. And, and I think that's the thing that I loved most. I think through great hardship comes great joy. I was just listening to a podcast by Anne uh, Voskamp speaking about grateful living and uh, that comes out of joy in God and that from that joy comes a, a real gratefulness. And to me, that's just what it comes about. It's just being really grateful to have this opportunity to do this, to live like this, and to share it with so many people who do amazing things. Wow, that's amazing. Gratitude and community are the words I wrote down there when you were talking. Yeah. Uh, Esther, I think you are so cool. I'm really glad. I'm really <laughs> glad uh, we've had this opportunity to chat. And I'm really glad I was on that webinar because I think... I think you're awesome, and I love what you've had to say. Oh, it's so sweet, Bryn. I think you're awesome, too. I listened to some of your podcast, and the one where you interviewed by this Scottish lady or Irish lady with this accent, and you spoke about your life. I loved it. Really cool stuff, Bryn. Oh, thank you very much. I did. I wasn't fishing for compliments, but I'll receive them happily. <laughs> I, um, I just I wonder how anybody that's listening to this and feel like actually a I'd really like to find out a little bit more about what you're doing with with um, uh, your the organisation, the name of which I've just forgotten. Be slavery free. <laughs> should, have, should have wrote that down. Be slavery free. I want to support. I like I like the sound of this lady. I want to support her or find out more about her. Where can you direct them? Well, um, our website is in Dutch, so we have beslaveryfree.nl. If you want to go to the Australian one, that's beslaveryfree.com. And you can find about all our campaigns we have on chocolate and tea and fishing and uh, fashion. Yeah. So, uh, but if you say how people can support me, I think the whole thing, being the change you want to see in the world, specifically when it comes to sexual exploitation, how to end that. Uh, I think raising your kids well is the best gift you can give to this world. Uh, so that also goes for the kids in your neighborhood, how you treat them, 
and how you treat other women. I think uh, patriarchy is, is still, specifically among Christians, they don't realize how big the influence of it is. And a lot of Christians are fighting against it. They're all like, oh, there's all Me Too movement. And I cannot even hug anyone anymore. I always think, yeah, so if it's something you would do to your grandma, and it's probably okay if it's something you wouldn't do to your grandma, you probably have to rethink what you were going to do to that person. So, yeah. And I think that's the, the thing I would be most happy with is, is people be conscious of what they buy, whether that's sex or any kind of uh, products, to make sure they check it. And there are lots of organizations that will tell you whether or not the produces you buy have exploitation in them. Mm, that's a great, it's a great summary of things to do. It calls for action. So I'll end it there, but I'm keen that we stay in touch. Thank you so much, Esther, for spending this time with me today. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, I'm going to have to order coffee from you now. Yes, you are. And I will try and find a way of getting it to you. We've just stopped shipping to the EU since Brexit because of complications. But that hopefully is only a, a temporary thing and a subject I'm keen for us to avoid. So on, on that basis, I think... I can also ask a friend of mine. I just sent her a package of Tony Chocoloni chocolate. So she still owes me. Oh, there you and go. She was just started to following you. So I'll ask her to get me some uh, Blue Bear coffee with... Well, let me know who that is and I'll make sure she gets a very fair price. <laughs> Esther, it's been great to talk to you this afternoon. Yes, you too, Bryn. Thanks so much for having me. The best thing about working in the justice world and hosting this podcast is getting the chance to meet people like Esther. People who are brave enough to stand up for what they believe in. Hell to the consequences. There's a doggedness, a committed tenacity about their characters, which I greatly admire. As I said at the start, the topic of the competing approaches in responding to the sex industry does cause division and discord and, sadly, in some cases, real bitterness. I recently wrote a blog on the subject, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Some are in agreement with my opinion, some in opposition. But that's okay. It's okay for us to disagree. I think it's important to disagree sometimes. But, of course, to do it respectfully and kindly. I'm learning to go against my natural disposition, which wants to avoid at all costs having an opinion that people may oppose. It's taken me a long time to get here. Esther, however, seems more comfortable with that role. And I aspire to be more Esther-like. How about you? There were some really interesting points in that conversation, wasn't there? The pimping ban that Esther supports is something we already have here in the UK. The investment in support mechanisms for sex workers and the gender equality education programs, we do not. Raising the minimum age of a sex worker to 21, I think that's a good idea. It was also rather shocking, wasn't it, to hear about the sentencing taking place in Dutch courts for those paying for sex with a child. How unjustifiably lenient it is. This is a returning theme. We spoke about this in an earlier podcast with John Tanago from IJM who reported on the lenient sentencing in UK courts for those caught abusing children online. Sentencing reform is clearly in dire need of attention. There is a proposed bill going before Parliament at the moment calling for the Nordic model to be instituted in the UK, which also has its most committed supporters and fiercest critics. My concern is that in our attempts to protect the most vulnerable, we are at risk of becoming so focused on what divides us that we're missing what unites us. I wish for our focus to be calibrated on the great inequality that exists in this world that causes someone to have to sell their body to survive 
and gives another person the power to buy it as if it were a commodity or product. For me, the accent is in the wrong place. The focus is on the decriminalization of the sex industry rather than the aspiration of equal access to safe employment and state support. Rather than challenging gender inequality by educating girls and protecting them from forced marriage. Rather than improving the police response to rape allegations, child abuse and domestic violence with the expansion of specially trained officers and victim-friendly courts. Rather than targeting the gross inequality that exists in this world between those with and those without. Perhaps I'm being wistfully hopeful to imagine a world where the $186 billion spent each year in the global sex industry went towards closing the divide between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. Do go and check out Esther's TED Talk. I'll put a link to it in the show notes too. And those chocolate fans out there, check out The Voice Network and learn more about the Cocoa Barrel Meter. That's the Cocoa Barrel, not bear, meter. Thanks for joining us on this episode, which has been produced by Blue Bear Coffee Co. We fight slavery through coffee. Come and get stocked up at bluebearcoffee.com. And join us in a month's time for the next episode of the Justice and Coffee podcast. Peace.